Hello, everyone. Welcome to our half year in Q2 2023 conference call and webcast for investors and analysts. The presentation was sent to our distribution list by email, and you can also find it on gsk.com. Please turn to slide two. This is the usual safe harbor statement. We'll comment on our performance using constant exchange rates or CR unless stated otherwise. As a reminder, following the consumer healthcare demerger in 2022 to former Halion, we're presenting performance and growth on the continuing operations for GSK. Please turn to slide three. Today's call will last approximately one hour and management presentation will take between 30 to 35 minutes with the remaining time for your questions. For those who wish to ask a question, please join the queue by raising your hand. Press star nine to raise and lower your hand if you're on the phone. And we request that you ask one question so that everyone has a chance to participate. Our speakers today are Emma Walmsley, Tony Wood, Luke Miles, Deborah Waterhouse and Julie Brown, with David Redfern joining the rest of the team for the Q&A portion of the call. Turning to slide four, I will now hand the call over to Emma. Thanks, Nick, and a very warm welcome to everyone joining us today. I'm delighted to be presenting to you all another set of excellent results for GSK. Please turn to the next slide. Sales and profits grew at double-digit levels for the quarter, our sixth consecutive quarter of strong growth. Sales were £7.2 billion, pounds, up 11%, excluding pandemic solutions. Adjusted operating profit was up 12%, to £2.2 billion, pounds, and adjusted EPS were up 17% to 38.8 pence. This is further evidence of a sustained step change in GSK's performance, and this momentum supports our decision to upgrade our guidance for the year. Our performance also demonstrated delivery of the strategic choices we've made to develop the portfolio and the R&D pipeline. New products, notably in vaccines and HIV, all made healthy contributions to growth and reflect the investments we've made to prioritise these parts of our business. 62% of sales are now coming from vaccines and specialty medicines, which we expect to provide durable and profitable growth through the decade. And new products launched since 2017 have contributed sales of £4.6 billion so far this year, adding nearly a billion pounds of additional turnover compared to 2022. Equally, our general meds business continues to perform alongside the other parts of our portfolio. Next slide, please. We are deploying capital in a financially disciplined way to invest in growth and deliver stronger returns to shareholders. We are delivering on our commitments, and as you can see from the slide, we are on track to hit all the targets we set out in 2021. As you all know, our very first priority for capital remains to invest in continued pipeline progress, and we know this is the key question for shareholders. At the core of our work is an aggressive pursuit of organic pipeline delivery and targeted business development. We're making good progress on both, and there is more to come. The approval of Erexfi this quarter is, we believe, transformational and set to bring enormous benefit to people aged over 60 who are at annual exposure of RSV. Erexfi is spearheading the next wave of vaccine innovation at GSK. This quarter, we presented positive clinical data for our pentavalent meningitis vaccine, secured regulatory approval for Shinrix in Japan in at-risk populations, and achieved US FDA fast-track designation for our candidate vaccine to prevent gonorrhea, a bacterium that is considered a high-priority pathogen by the WHO. And as you'll have seen at our recent Meet the Management event, we have substantial innovation to come with potential new vaccines to prevent influenza, pneumococcal disease, and herpes simplex virus. 
This all sits alongside other innovation in infectious diseases like reversing for Hep B and a new portfolio of much-needed anti-infectives. We're also very pleased with progress we're making in our HIV portfolio. A key aspect here is, of course, to develop the portfolio to replace the loss of exclusivity for dolutegravir, which, as a reminder, is not expected to start until 2028 in the US and 2029 in Europe. And we are well on track to do this. We expect sales from our new long-acting regimens of around £2 billion by 2026. And to add to this, clinical development plans are advancing very well to support new ultra-long-acting options launching from 2026. And with these innovations, we aim to replace the majority of revenues from Dolotegravir and support profitable growth for GSK well into the next decade. And we're looking forward to talking to you more about all this at our HIV Meet the Management event in late September. Equally, we continue to make good progress in our business development. Here, we're targeting acquisitions and partnerships to strengthen and complement our core therapy areas to help deliver above and beyond our current long-term outlooks. So you should expect to see us keep up broadly the same levels and pace of BD as we have in the last 18 months. This quarter, we completed the acquisition of Bellas Health, building upon our respiratory expertise with the addition of camelopixent, a phase three potential best-in-class treatment for refractory chronic cough. Our pipeline and broader respiratory is developing well, too, across all three product areas, and we're increasingly confident it will be a major source of new long-term growth. Next slide, please. Our focus is to deliver competitive performance and improved shareholder value in the short, medium, and long term. With our current momentum and further successful execution of our priorities, we are very confident in our ability to deliver profitable sales growth in all three of these timeframes. For 2023, we now expect to deliver sales growth of 8 to 10% and adjusted operating profit growth of 11 to 13%. For 2026, we expect to deliver sales of more than 5% and adjusted operating profit of more than 10% on a CAGA basis. And by 2031, we're confident we will have effectively absorbed any impact from the loss of exclusivity across the portfolio to deliver our stated ambition of more than £33 billion in sales. We know this ambition is significantly higher than current market expectations, and over the next year, we'll continue to bring you more clarity and specificity on our building blocks to deliver profitable results through a series of media management events, data readouts, and a more comprehensive update against our 2021 long-term plan. Let me now hand over to Tony, who will talk you through his latest thoughts on R&D priorities and performance. Thank you, Emma, and hello, everyone. It's great to be with you today. Please turn to slide nine. I'm pleased to report that we're making good progress in strengthening the pipeline, and we know there's more to come. Our absolute focus is to develop a robust pipeline that can drive sustainable, profitable growth. I see this being achieved through a combination of organic delivery and disciplined business development, overlaid with continuous improvement in R&D productivity. This is reflected in my three priorities for R&D shown on this slide and in the delivery of our strategy, which is focused across four therapeutic areas and aims to leverage our deep understanding of the immune system and use of advanced technologies. Next slide, please. It's important that we allocate our capital and resources effectively. I think about this from two perspectives. First, from a therapeutic area standpoint, our priority is to build on our strengths and leadership in infectious diseases 
HIV, respiratory immunology, and our emerging capabilities in oncology. This is by investing in both organic and targeted business development to deliver first or best-in-class innovation, balancing probabilities of success and sales potential. And we apply the same discipline and returns criteria for both approaches. In addition, we also see platform and data technology-enabled opportunities. Second, from a time perspective, I want to develop, partner, or acquire vaccines, specialty medicines, and technologies with significant commercial potential that can meaningfully contribute to sales and profit growth in the latter part of this decade and beyond. Ultimately, I want a portfolio of R&D innovation that offers a good balance of risk and return, and which can drive growth for GSK above and beyond the ambitious, the ambition, sorry, and we just talked about. Slide 11, please. Our pipeline today comprises 68 assets in clinical development. Two-thirds of the assets within our development portfolio are focused on infectious diseases in HIV. In infectious diseases, we're focused on seasonal respiratory viruses, bacterial, clonal, and chronic viral infections. Vaccines are front and center of this effort. Emma has already mentioned the RexDee and some of the innovation that is coming behind it. Our pentavalent meningococcal vaccine candidate recently met all primary endpoints in the phase three trial, and demonstrated immunological effectiveness against 110 diverse MenB strains. These account for 95% of circulating strains in the US. Five serogroups are responsible for most meningococcal infections, and no single approved vaccine can yet protect against all five. If approved, men ABCWI would do so, offering a simplified immunization schedule and supporting increased vaccine uptake. This is important when you consider that only 30% of adults currently, currently receive full protection from all five meningococcal serums. We're on track to submit the vaccine to regulators in 2024. Our novel 24-valent pneumococcal vaccine candidate, acquired through the Affinivax transaction, has also shown very positive immune response across serotypes. We continue to examine potential acceleration options for the 24- and 30-valent programs in infants and adults. With CureVac, we're looking to disrupt the influenza market and deliver new multivalent combination vaccines using next-generation mRNA technology. Multivalent phase one and two flu and COVID trials are underway, and we expect data from these towards the end of this year and the start of 2024. In chronic viral infections, in addition to geographic expansion, we're looking at new growth opportunities for shingles. These include extending the population who might benefit from protection to a younger cohort, such as the recent Japanese approval to include adults aged 18 to 49. And we continue to review the potential need for a booster. Additionally, a growing body of evidence suggests that shingles vaccination may reduce the risk of dementia. And we're leveraging our expertise in herpes varicella zoster virus to develop a promising injectable treatment for the control of herpes simplex virus reactivation. Our plan is to initiate proof-of-concept studies later this year. In anti-infectives, we've now assembled a promising portfolio of new medicines. Jepatitis, in which has stopped early for efficacy and is anticipated to launch next year, has the potential to be the first oral antibiotic to treat uncomplicated urinary tract infections in more than 20 years. Complementing this is Tebipen from Spirotherapeutics, which, if approved, 
will provide us with access to a late-stage antibiotic with the potential to treat complicated urinary tract infections. Brexifam, a novel first-in-class medicine to treat fungal infection, acquired through an exclusive license agreement with Synexis, completes this trio. The Pyreversal is another potentially transformative treatment which could help patients achieve a functional cure for chronic hepatitis B. We look forward to presenting data from our Phase 2B trial, B together, later this year. This trial is designed to answer whether interferons need to improve the durability of functional cure following therapy treatment. In HIV, we're entering an important period in our clinical development plans for potential ultra-long-acting treatment and prevention options. These spearhead the transition we expect to deliver in the HIV portfolio over the next five years. We'll be setting out more detail on these in our third quarter investor event. In respiratory and immunology, we're prioritizing late-stage development of our IL-5 medicine, Depomocomite. The addition of camlopixib, a highly selective P2X3 antagonist, for the treatment of refractory chronic cough, also provides us with another asset in phase three development. Luke and I expect to be sharing more with you on our plans and opportunities in respiratory before the year end. In oncology, we're progressing the regulatory submission for momolotinib following the US FDA's recently extended review date to September. We're confident this new medicine will help tackle the significant and debilitating medical needs of myelofibrosis patients with anemia. Given the makeup of our current portfolio and capabilities, our approach in oncology is to prioritize the development of novel medicines to treat blood and women's cancers and to explore other potential breakthroughs in immuno-oncology. Jan Perley, our highly effective PD-1 inhibitor, is central to this approach, and exploration as a backbone treatment for use in combination with other proven or promising therapies is in development. Next slide, please. You'll see how many of the elements I've just touched on are expected to play out over the next 12 or 18 months. I believe these, together with targeted business development and a series of important phase one, phase two investment decisions, will lead to significant progression of this pipeline in the short term. Slide 13, please. Alongside allocating resources to prioritize and accelerate clinical development, I want us to continue to improve overall R&D productivity. We've made progress. Success rates and cycle times are improving, but more needs to be done. For me, this really means two things. First, doubling down on leveraging our scientific capabilities with the use of new platform and data technologies. And second, developing our partnering and external sourcing capabilities. With AI and machine learning applications now rapidly maturing, access to proprietary data to feed models and generate novel insights is a key strategic differentiator. For example, we recently presented data in ESOL for better reversal from the B-Clear Phase 2 B-Trial. This deep multimodal analysis helped us to develop a clear heterogeneity map in chronic hepatitis B, stratifying individuals treated with the periversal into three subtypes, a highly enriched response, a mixed response, and a non-responding subtype, each defined by distinct clinical, virological, and molecular trajectories and associated with a number of markers. These predictive models provide greater precision than existing markers and suggest potential enrichment strategies. We're competitively placed in platform technologies and have laid strong foundations in data technologies. I want us to now vigorously scale and build on these foundations to better de-risk targets and rapidly test and progress high-quality first-in-class candidates. 
all with the aim of accelerating and improving the success rates of our development programs. In summary, let me close by saying I'm pleased with the progress we've made so far this year and that we have clear plans in place to move forward at pace to deliver on our key objectives for R&D and support the overall growth ambitions for GSK. I'll now hand it over to Luke on slide 14. Thanks, Tony. Please turn to the next slide. Pleased to say that quarter two was another quarter of continued strong commercial execution with growth across the business. All three of our product groups, vaccines, specialty, and general medicines, were up in the quarter with growing contributions across all three regions. Please turn to slide 16. In quarter two, we delivered 7.1 billion pounds in sales, up 11% of last year, excluding pandemic solutions. In vaccines, strong growth of 15%, excluding pandemic solutions, was supported by Shingrix, which was up 20%, and Vexero, which was up 18%. Shingrix delivered another record quarter of sales, and it's the sixth consecutive quarter of growth. In the US, we've now reached the most motivated consumers with about 32% penetration of eligible people receiving at least one dose. Moving forward in the US, we're resourcing for success by raising awareness about the importance of shingles prevention, especially among consumers who are less motivated to get vaccines. We remain confident in the US opportunity and believe we can reach flu-like penetration of around 60 to 60%, 65% over time. XUS remains an important growth driver for Shingrix and uh, represented 46% of the revenue in the quarter. Shingrix is now available in 33 countries with most, uh, with less than 3% penetration, indicating the potential for further expansion in these populations. We've got unconstrained supply and strong global demand, and we continue to retain high value with US-like pricing as we launch in private pay settings globally. In specialty medicines, including HIV, which Deborah will speak about shortly, we increased sales by 12%, excluding Zalubi, to £2.5 billion. Our market-leading blockbuster specialty medicine, Benlister and Yukala, continued to deliver double-digit growth. Benlister was up 19% in the quarter with sustained growth across all major markets, with further opportunity to drive increased penetration in both SLE and lupus nephritis, with about 25% buyer penetration in the US and other key markets. We're focused on life cycle management opportunities for Van Lister as we explore further indications including systemic sclerosis associated with interstitial lung disease, which will be important for patients as well as having a continued halo effect across the entire product. Eucala was up 15% in the quarter and remains the first and only biologic approved in 40 cynophilic diseases with new indications driving growth and differentiation. The severe asthma market continues to grow in the US with opportunity for Nucala to drive biopenetration with our clearly differentiated profile in high EOS patients. And we look forward to having COP data in 2024. In oncology, sales are down 3% in line with expectations. However, Jim Hurley continues to be a growing contributor, and we're excited about the potential for our PD-1 as a development program investigates the opportunity to help more patients with endometrial, ovarian, and potentially other indications. Our general medicine portfolio grew 8%, driven primarily by Trilogy, which was up 30% in the quarter. Trilogy continues to have a best-in-class profile across uh, access to versus competitors, and there's a leading share of voice with key specialty HCPs like pulmonologists and allergists. Considering this strong Q2 and H1 performance, we now expect specialty medicines to grow high single-digit and general medicines to grow at low single-digit in the full year. We still expect vaccines to grow in the team. Please turn to slide 17. 
We're very excited about the upcoming launch of Erexi, and we believe Erexi's profile and recommendation to support our market leadership and tradition with multi-billion annual sales potential. Additionally, the CDC has now adopted last month's ASIP recommendation, and it is being communicated broadly to healthcare providers, an important step that sets clinical guidance and establishes a trigger for payer coverage. Launch is now underway as we speak, and we have a clear understanding of what is required for successful commercial execution. We're also building on our relationships with retailers, given our expertise with the older adult population through Shingrix, and we're playing to our strength using our deep respiratory expertise and our experience with trilogy primary care cell falls. We've now shipped doses to distribution centres, and we look forward to the impact that this important medicine will have on help prevent the severe consequences of RSV in the US and globally, as we also prepare to launch this season across Europe. With that, now let me hand over to Deborah on slide 18. Thanks, Luke. Our HIV business delivered sales of £1.6 billion in the second quarter of 2023, growing 12%. This growth was primarily driven by demand, which contributed 8 percentage points of growth, and US pricing favourability, which contributed a further 2 percentage points of growth. Our performance benefited from strong patient demand for our oral two-drug regimens and long-acting injectable medicines, which now constitute more than 40 more than 50% of our total portfolio. This demand helped grow our global market share by two percentage points versus last year. The inventory build that we saw in the US at the end of last year has now materially burned, and we don't anticipate any further significant burn this year. Tobato delivered £430 million in the quarter. Market performance reflects HCP belief in Tobato, which is now our number one selling HIV medicine. We were also pleased that Donna Tegravir received US FDA pediatric exclusivity in the quarter, which extends the Donna Tegravir loss of exclusivity in the US by a further six months to April 2029. And as a reminder, Europe is 20, to April 2028, and as a reminder, Europe is 2029. We aim to further consolidate our leadership in pediatric HIV by following a similar approach with our foundational medicine, Cabotegravir. Turning to Cabanuva, sales for the quarter were £176 million, reflecting strong patient demand with high levels of market access and reimbursement across the US and Europe. Growth is being driven by positive sentiment towards the solar data presented at Croy earlier in the year and strong commercial execution. It is particularly pleasing to see that more than 70% of Cabernet sales are originating from competitor regimens. Moving on to prevention, sales of Apritude, the world's first long-acting injectable for the prevention of HIV, delivered £36 million in the quarter, and we're pleased by the growing momentum across the US. We were delighted that earlier this week, the European Medicines Agency granted positive opinion for this medicine, with more than 100,000 new infections every year across the continent, we very much look forward to the approval of Attitude, which has the potential to significantly reduce the transmission of HIV in Europe. We're encouraged by the progress of our pipeline, which is focused on innovative long-acting regimens. We have three clear target medicine profiles to provide the world's first self-administered long-acting regimen for treatment and to provide ultra-long-acting regimens for treatment and prevention with dosing intervals of three months or longer. I'm pleased to confirm that next month, 
We shall begin our phase 2B study of cabotegravir in combination with our broadly neutralizing antibody N6LS, which offers the potential for ultra-long-acting dosing. We are very excited about the potential of these medicine profiles and will be ready to regimen select in 2024. We remain very confident in our ambition to achieve a five-year mid-single-digit sales CAGR to 2026. And our strong future performance means we are in a position to raise our outlook for 2023 from mid-single digit to a high single-digit growth rate. And with that, I will hand to Julie on slide 19. Good afternoon, everyone. I am delighted to be here at my first set of results as a CFO for GSK. The biopharma industry is incredibly special to me. It's where I've spent most of my career, and it is a sector that can create enormous value for patients and shareholders. GSK is a company that I've long admired, and it has a clear purpose to positively impact the health of billions over the next decade. And I'm really pleased to be part of the team that is going to deliver this. As this is the first time speaking to you, and before we cover the financials, I wanted to take the opportunity to highlight three areas of focus that are going to be important to me as CFO. So first, disciplined capital allocation, with two clear priorities, to invest for growth and to deliver improved returns to shareholders. Second, partnering with Tony, to enhance returns on investment and improve R&D productivity with a strong focus on resource optimization and efficient funding. And third, identifying sources of business efficiency to fund investments and deliver a competitive P&L. So first, turning to the next slide in capital allocation. Our first priority is investment in the business driven towards development of the pipeline through both organic and targeted business development. We will also invest to support new product launches. My intention here is to be laser focused on prioritizing and accelerating investment in those assets and technologies which will help us to deliver growth. I intend to achieve this through an increased focus on ROI for organic and BD related investments. And this will include an assessment of the market opportunity, first-in-class potential and best-in-class potential, peak year sales, probability of success, and expected financial returns. For returns to shareholders, our primary mechanism for cash distributions will remain through the delivery of a progressive dividend. And last year, the payout ratio of 40 to 60% over the cycle was established. And we expect to maintain dividends within this range as earnings increase over time. For completeness, in the event of a surplus, excess cash would be returned to shareholders using the most efficient mechanism available. However, we do not expect ex excess cash in the medium term, given our priority is to invest in growth. And finally, and very importantly, we remain committed to maintaining a balance sheet with a strong investment grade credit rating. Taken together, I believe this represents a sensible capital allocation framework for GSK, consistent with our strategic priorities and supportive of our commitments to deliver profitable growth through this decade. Turning now to the quarter, as I cover the financials, references to growth are at constant exchange rates unless otherwise stated, and I will focus my comments on adjusted results. 
So starting with the income statement, sales increased 11%, excluding COVID solutions, and we're up 4% overall, reflecting the strong delivery that Luke and Deborah have covered. Operating leverage, primarily in COGS, drove adjusted operating profit growth of 11%, with the margin increasing to 30.2%. Excluding COVID solutions, adjusted operating profit grew 12%. Turning to the reported results, the growth in total profit was driven by strong operating performance and favourable contingent consideration liability remeasurements. Please turn to slide 22. And turning to margin dynamics. As mentioned, the adjusted operating margin was 30.2%, a 200 basis point increase versus the prior year at constant rates. Excluding the impact of COVID solutions, the margin increased 20 basis points. Cost of goods sold decreased, primarily, primarily reflecting reduced sales of low margins of UD in Q2, which resulted in a gross profit increase of 11%. Excluding COVID solutions, COGS increased in line with sales with a neutral gross margin impact, with favourable mix and efficiencies offset by higher freight and energy costs. SGNA reflects investment behind product launches, such as Shingrix, geographic expansion, HIV, and preparations for Rexley's imminent launch. We expect the SGNA growth to reduce in the fourth quarter as investment levels stabilise and to be broadly in line with sales growth for the full year. In R&D, there was increased investment across a range of early and late stage programs, including a number that Deborah and Tony discussed earlier. And royalties benefited from Gardasil, Bictavi and Cassenta, and there was a 70 basis point adverse move from foreign exchange. And next slide, please. So earnings per share benefited from lower net finance expense and no controlling interests. And now turning to the adjusted compared with our total results. Next slide, please. So overall, total and adjusted operating profit were similar in the, in the second quarter at 2.1 and 2.2 billion, respectively. In addition to CCL remeasurements, the main other adjusting items of note were within divestments, significant legal and other. And this reflected dividend and distribution income received, including Halion dividends and the fair value movements of Halion shares, which was partly offset by significant legal charges. Legal fees primarily reflected increased charges for Zantac, of which the vast majority relate to prospective legal costs for the defence. Next slide, please. Cash generated from operations was 1.9 billion in the first half, 2 billion lower than the prior year. And the key drivers are similar to those covered at Q1 and relate to the Gilead settlement and timing of Zabudi collections received last year, together with pension payments and increased working capital this year. There was no change to our expectation that 2023 cash generated from operations will be slightly lower than 2022. And we remain committed to our 2026 projection of more than £10 billion. Net debt increased to £18.2 billion, reflecting the free cash outflow and net acquisition costs of Bellas Healthcare, partly offset by disposal of investments, including the monetization of part of our equity holding in Halion. 
and turning now to guidance on slide 26. We have delivered a very strong first half, and as Emma mentioned, we are upgrading our guidance for the year. As a reminder, all of this guidance excludes the impact of COVID-19 solutions. We now expect sales to increase between 8 and 10% or 2 percentage points. We expect adjusted operating profit to increase between 11 and 13%, and adjusted earnings per share to increase between 14 and 17%. Within sales, we are maintaining our full year vaccines expectation of a mid-teens percentage growth, and are upgrading our expectations for specialty and gem med. We now anticipate specialty medicines and HIV within it to grow a high single-digit percent and for GenMed to grow a low single-digit percent. And turning to phasing, and firstly on sales, we expect that the second half growth will be below the first half, informed by the comparatives. We would also expect sales growth to be slightly higher in Q3 relative to Q4. And secondly on operating profit, we expect that the second half growth will be stronger than the first, with a broadly similar growth rate in each quarter, primarily reflecting SGNA growth expectations as mentioned earlier. Next slide, please. In summary, our business is performing well and with strong momentum. I look forward to connecting with you and updating you on our progress and continued delivery towards our 26 and 31 goals in the quarters to come. With that in mind, slide 27 shares how we plan to keep you informed in four key areas, execution, portfolio, capital allocation, and investor events. Execution shares our major earnings and reviews. The portfolio component builds on the R&D catalyst shared in Tony's presentation. Capital allocation is being clarified further today. And the Investor Relations Programme shares how we plan to provide you with the building blocks underpinning our pipeline and the opportunity to meet the management at two more events this year. The first will focus on HIV in September, followed by respiratory and immunology in the fourth quarter. We will also continue to run a comprehensive programme of meetings, participation in investor conferences and updates from key medical events. And thank you. And with that, I will hand back to Emma. Thanks, Julie. It's great to have you with us. Turning to slide 25. We continue to build trust by delivering in the six key areas we prioritise for ESG performance. This quarter, we made progress on several fronts, but I want to highlight one in particular. Of the more than two and a half billion people we'll reach this decade, the majority will be through our infectious disease portfolio of vaccines, antibiotics, antivirals and global health products. And so we were delighted to see new third party funding announced to advance M72, a tuberculosis vaccine candidate discovered and developed by GSK into phase three development. This could potentially become the first new vaccine to help prevent pulmonary TB in more than a hundred years. It is a true testament to GSK's vaccine scientists and our ability to partner with others to develop innovative global health assets in an economically viable and sustainable way. With more than 10 million people falling ill and more than one and a half million people dying from TB every year, and increasing evidence of drug resistance, the successful development of this vaccine could have a profound impact on human health. 
final slide, please. So, in summary, we are seeing strong momentum in our performance with continued delivery of competitive sales and profit growth. We remain very focused on continuing to progress our pipeline through organic development and targeted complementary business development. And our progress is providing us with high confidence to deliver our outlooks and ambitions for shareholders through the decade. And with that, let's move to, to, to the Q&A with the team. Thanks, Emma. So just as a reminder, for those that wish to, jo- uh, to ask a question, please join the queue by raising your hands. If you're on the phone, please press star nine to raise and lower your hands. And uh, again, just request that uh, you ask one question uh, in the first instance, and then we can always come back for a second round. Let's take our first question from James Gordon at JP Morgan. So James, you're able to speak, so over to you, please. Hello, James Gordon, JP Morgan. Thanks for taking the question. I'll, I'll keep to one. Uh, my, my question's about shingwicks in the US. So, um, I, I think the sales declined 10% this quarter, although maybe it's sort of flattish when we adjust for stocking, but I saw you've refined the shingwicks global guidance. So it's now high teens this year. I think it was double digit before. Uh, and Luke made some comments about having reached the most motivated patients in the US and further penetration increases, but that sounds like maybe that's going to be tougher in the less motivated patients. So so the question is, where, where are we on Shingrick's and U.S. growth specifically? Could we now be running out of grow, out of road for the U.S. growth, and it's going to be more ex-U.S. growth, but the U.S. is maybe sort of flat this year and then could even decline? Or is Q2 a bit of a blip and the stocking and other one-off factors and there's still plenty of U.S. growth to come? Thanks, James. Uh, obviously, we're still very ambitious for uh, the scale and reach of Jimrix, but Luke, do you want us to really come up and done out to the US? Sure, James. And I, I suspect you're probably not the only person with that question, so I'll take a little bit longer to, to, to cover all those points. So the short answer is not yet. Um, I mean, we've covered in past calls. There will be a point um, which we're entering now, but we need to work harder to develop this, what is essentially a, a logarithmic uh, growth curve. But, um, yeah, I'll just, I'll take a little bit to outline those dynamics because it's very much a non-retail effect right now. Um, and as you said, with some stock movements. So for retail first, we actually saw an 8% growth uh, or up 8% versus last year. And that was pretty much driven by 65-year-old um, individuals coming in following the removal of the copay linked to the IRA. Um, and it's interesting, in Q4 and Q1, we, we added about 2% to the total vaccination rate each time. So we're now at a penetration of around 32% on the latest data that we have, which is Q1. Um, if you then sort of subtract that, that's about 80 million more people to go if we were to get to 100%. Um, and we add around 4 million people who turn 50 each year. Uh, the other important element on stocking is we actually changed the rules um, in terms of how much stock wholesalers could hold. So we have two categories, category A, category B. Historically, um, Shingrix has been classified in category B, which just gave wholesalers more room and more flexibility in terms of the volumes that they hold. We've now tightened that up to try and remove some of this volatility. If you remember last year, we had stock movements, which were sort of 1.3 to 1.8 and down to one to down to 0.9. Um, so far this year, we're pretty tight in the range of 0.6 to 0.7. Expected we'll go up a little bit as we enter Q3 in the flu season, but we're trying to keep a, a tighter column on that. Uh, so that has an effect as well. Uh, now, if we, if we go to the non-retail, this is the important component uh, in the US. And this is the key shift. Um, so historically, 
non-retail has been around 45, 50% of the business. But in Q1, that went down to 34%. And in Q1, Q2, it's around 31%. And it's very specific. We have uh, a very small number of key customers who are now approaching 60% uh, of the target population in their vaccination. Uh, now, we have about 197 other key customers that we can work for. Uh, so I guess the glass half full look at this is that we can get to uh, the types of penetration that we're targeting uh, in these centres, uh, and that's an opportunity with the other ones. So, But you're right, we do need to work harder uh, to get to those um, less motivated patients, but we've always known that's coming and we've got plans to do that. If we look outside of the US, just to conclude, um, we, we sort of try to explain historically that we have these three phases. You have the US, which is, is sort of done on that curve, we're now starting in, in uh, Europe uh, and we're very early days in markets like Canada, uh, China. Um, and as, as we said, there are about 3% penetration if you exclude the US and Germany, which are ahead of the curve, the deeper penetration. So we're in good shape um, overall. And I think um, look forward to updating you on Q3. Thanks, Luke. And, and the other point to emphasize is, as Luke referred to, the cost of reaching deeper in the US obviously goes up and actually uh, in the other markets we're in because we don't have uh, advertising uh, and because pricing has been successfully um, globalised, uh, you know, that it remains a very uh, appealing business in adult immunisation, which of course we're now adding to with RSD and much more exciting additional pipeline beyond that. Next question, please. Next question is from Joe Walton at Credit Swiss OMT, please, Joe. Hello? Yeah. Yep, thank you. Um, I would like to ask a question about IRA um, and two aspects of that. I wonder if you have a view about increased volume in anything other than vaccines, uh, given the change in patient copay going down. And also, if you could talk about uh, penny pricing and how we should think about that. You have some old products which will have accumulated very large uh, rebates, which in theory, um, you know, would would become a problem next year. We've seen the internet yeah. companies talk about it. How are you going to handle that in respiratory? Thank you. Thanks, Joe. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll come to Luke to add, but you're, you're absolutely right. Um, there are some really good things uh, about the IRA that we're very supportive of the co-pays in, in, uh, in um, removal in, in vaccines is, is important for uh, our portfolio. Um, there are some other things that alongside others in the sector we're concerned about in terms of unintended consequences. And for two parts of our portfolio, HIV will be more like in 25, um, and then in gen meds from next year, there is some impact, all of which is explicitly absorbed in our guidance and in our outlooks. So um, you'll see some volatility there. But uh, Luke, I, I don't know whether you'd like to comment more on the specifics in established respiratory. Yeah, sure. I mean, it, Joe, you're, you're bang on in terms of some effects, in terms of compliance. I mean, we see patients drop out of products like Trilogy um, in terms of that historical coverage gap. So that should help with the volume. As Emma said, there's other aspects of the program that we're, we're less enamored of and we need to see how they affect. In terms of AMCAP, um, we've got a very clear uh, list of products, exactly as you said, that have had pretty intensive um, discounting and historical price increases, which have been um, you know, ahead of inflation. 
um, and those rebates to commercial players will have an effect. I mean, the total exposure, this is just total revenue, not, not impact. I want to really stress this. About 700 million US dollars. Um, so that's Flova, HFA, Flova Discus, Adver HFA, Adver Discus, Cerebin and Lamictal. And the biggest of those is Lamictal. Um, now we've, we've had a lot of warning that this is coming and we, we're working. The US has done a great job in terms of developing authorized generics, partnerships. Um, we have options to divest selected products and where we can't bring an authorized generic uh, or we, we uh, are unable to divest, of course, we can always lower the whack um, to adjust that. So that's a collection of approaches that we're doing to, to protect the bulk of that business. Thanks. So next question, please. So the next question is from James Quigley at Morgan Stanley. James, over to you, please. Great, thank you very much. So, uh, maybe a question for, uh, for Julie picking up on one of her, one of her comments. So, you mentioned sort of building a competitive P&L. So, what is your definition of a competitive P&L and, and what, what sort of focus, what would, what would be the focus areas to generate that, uh, that competitiveness in terms of margin ranges or growth potential? And then there are, and are there any sort of early areas uh, that, that could drive efficiencies or, or levers that you can use um, to get you into these these competitive ranges. Thank you. Right, James, all straight to you, Jim. Okay, thank you very much. Thanks, Jim. So, in terms of, um, I see a competitive PL as one that's operating to full capacity and making optimal use of, of the resources in the business and capital allocation in the business. And um, I think progress, good progress has been made in GSK already following the separation with the future ready program. I mean, clearly at the moment we're in the launch cycle with a number of important medicines and vaccines being brought to the market, as as Luke and Deborah both mentioned. Um, As we move beyond this, of course, we will continue to look for efficiencies. And we do anticipate once we're through the launch cycle that SG&A will grow at a lower rate than sales, thereby improving that particular margin and working with Tony closely because obviously I've been in the farm industry for a long time and worked with R&D for a long time uh, clearly investment and productivity and resource allocation in R&D is critical to a pharmaceutical business so as you can imagine I will spend some time looking for continuous improvement and opportunities to fuel business efficiencies to fuel further growth. Thanks Next question please. So the next question comes from Emily Fields at Barclays. So over to you, please, Emily. Emily, are you there? Okay, can I propose we take the next question then from uh, Peter Welford? So, Peter, over oh, to no, you. Oh, no, I'm here. I'm here. Can you hear me? Uh, can you hear me? Yeah, yeah. You can. Sorry, 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 I didn't get the pop-up. I didn't get the pop-up. I apologize. Um, sorry, so I wanted to ask a question on flu vaccine. Um, I know that you had previously guided, um, you know, for a down year, but that's now expected to be down 20%. If you could give any color on what the driver is for that. And then I believe on the pipeline slides, you indicated that we could get an update on the go-forward plans for the um, mRNA seasonal flu vaccine, um, and if you could just give any sort of high-level thoughts on what we could expect um, from that decision in the back half of this year. Thank you. Okay, thanks, Emily. Uh, I think you said on flu, uh, so I'll come to, I mean, as you know, our 
current flu business is in, let's call it, uh, not the most modern technology uh, uh, platform, and uh, we are expecting a declining sales. I'll also comment very briefly on, on uh, why uh, we see that, but once again, to reiterate, our overall outlook for vaccines overall uh, remains very strong for the year, and then perhaps Tony, you can update. Uh, I know we're excited about um, the potential doublet um, pursuit that we can go after with mRNA. Um, so, Luke, sure, thanks, Emily. Um, Emily, thanks for your question. So, basically, you've got a comparative issue as the demand uh, around the time of COVID, of course, was very high, and so that's uh, there's, there's pressure there. And the fact is there's a lot of doses around there with people who are very motivated to discount to offload them. So we're seeing pricing pressure. In terms of volumes, we expect around 43 million doses this year versus around 51 million that we sold in 2022. So, you know, our goal remains to evolve this technology. And I'll hand over to uh, Tony. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so, so first of all, I mean, as, as I said, we're, we're now um, moving with the mRNA partnership and into and COVID into evaluation of multivalent options. We continue to be encouraged by the the data that we see there, and that is a, a move into phase one and phase two studies. We expect in in the case of of both instances, and we'll see readouts on those towards the end of the year and the, at the beginning of, of next year. I think probably the only other thing I, I would add is that I'm, I'm sure you've followed this as well that. You know, the field continues to encounter difficulties in, in flu with regards to coverage, particularly in B strains. And what, what I'd say at this point is that is our studies are designed to account for on um, B strain coverage and looking at a broader range of antigens. So all of that will come together when we're going to have an opportunity to update you in more detail at, at the beginning of next year. But very pleased with the progress on the platform. Thanks. And next question, please. So our next question is from Peter Welford at Jeffrey's over to you, please, Peter. Hi, yes, thanks. Um, I, I just wanted to come back and apologize for this, Luke, but back to just U.S. shingrakes for a minute, just to try and understand um, the, the, the cadence here that we're talking about. I mean, presumably the, the retail segment is typically the segment that we would anticipate to increase towards the end of the year. So just trying to understand, it. in that segment you're saying demand is still robust, but presumably we'll see the usual sort of detailing that you do um, together with, with Blue, or, or is there any sort of uh, issue, I guess, with, with a Rex fee perhaps taking over priority there um, going into the flu season for the retail channel this year? And, and for the non-retail, just trying to understand. So, so the, the issue is that the, there's a large, the, the majority of, of, of the non-retail segment has yet to reach that 60 to 65 percent. But, but, but it's becoming. Is it, 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 well, could you just talk about what is the challenge, perhaps, to debt doctors there? Is it is it coverage, or is it as insurance coverage, or, or is it just you know getting these people back in to see the position? Um, well, what is it exactly that the sort of the ceiling there with the doctors, please? Thank you. Sure. Um, so, Peter, I'll start with uh, non-retail first. So we've, we've had a couple of very, very large players that we've intensively worked with. And as, as natural, when you've got momentum, you, you try and go with that. And uh, we really wanted to see how high the penetration we can get. And we still expect those large um, centres to keep uh, vaccinating. And our aim is to go beyond 60%. But the curve does tend to flatten out at 60%. Now, if we think long term, this is why I'm personally fascinated with the relationship that we've seen in the uh, Welsh study around vaccination and, and Shingrix and, and a potential relationship 
with, with dimension, we're going to be very busy with life cycle work on that one, both prospectively and, and retroactive, uh, retrospective analysis. Um, there are another 197 key customers that we have that are in the 30s um, or a range from sort of the 30s to the 60s that we are now putting more work behind. We also um, pulled back on, on uh, the primary care promotion on Shingrix in these centres and we're concentrating on Trilogy to give that a hard push along with Nucala as an experiment to see if PCPs would respond. We're now switching that team back to Shingrix. So that, that's all pointing in the right direction. It's more a case of prioritisation um, and just moving that up. These larger centres put a flag in the system and, and we saw volumes really moving. So we just need to do the hard work to pick up the other ones now and I feel very confident we can do that. In terms of retail... Um, you're right, there is, you know, we, there's still a seasonal relationship, uh, and we expect that to continue. It's not as extreme as it was in the first couple of years of, of, of Shingrick, but it still exists. Um, the unknowns are, there's no push on COVID booster this year, so we don't know what effect that is. That has been a drag historically. But as you correctly point out, we're going to be very busy with Erexity, targeting the high-risk individuals, which is a subset of, um, of the, of the Shingrix target universe. So, um, let's see, uh, we'll get some more color. I, I unfortunately don't have a crystal ball, but, um, I remain very confident about the demand for this product, uh, in the US, uh, in 23. And just to remind everyone again, ex-US and Germany, we're at less than 3% penetration. So there is, you know, plenty of runway for this asset, and it's an asset that we are planning to add to. So next question, please. So our next question comes from Eric LaBerger at Steeple. Eric, over to you, please. Uh, yeah, thank you, Nick. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, just a question to get more clarity in terms of cash flow development. Uh, we're now getting in terms of earning growth into the double digits, and you're raising the guidance here, but still guiding in terms of cash flow declining this year. Uh, could you maybe... Uh, give us a little bit more details about the push and pulls uh, to make the difference between earning growth and cash flow decline, uh, even though we, we go beyond the Gidead settlement and the COVID impact, and uh, and whether getting into 24 and, and beyond, we might see cash flow development more in line with earnings. Thank you. Thanks, Eric. Well, uh, over to you, Julie. And um, remember, we're re- re- reiterating our 26 outlook for uh, Operating cash flow, over to you. Yeah, thanks, Emma, very much. And thanks for the question, Eric. Um, so this, this year, clearly, um, we've had an influence of a number of factors with the cash flow. Um, a couple of things happened last year that have obviously infected the comparator. So last year with the cash flow, we had the Gilead settlement, um, that occurred at the beginning of the year. And then we've also had, uh, Zavudi receivables coming in last year. Um, this year, the, the cash flow has been depressed somewhat, partly by movements in working capital and also which we expect to resolve by the end of the year. And also we've had um, an additional pension payment that's been made this year, which was reasonably sizable, over 350 million. So there are, you know, some, some somewhat one-offs, you may call them, relating to the cash flow. This is, this is why you see the two billion swing in, in the first half. But we are maintaining the guidance uh, for the full year for cash flow, which is basically to be slightly lower um, than last year. The major reason you do see this difference, usually our cash flow weighting is very much towards the second half. We normally have around 70 to 75 percent of the cash coming in in the second half of the year. 
Last year was very unusual. It was 50-50 because of the things I mentioned. So that's why you're seeing the difference. In terms of 2024, obviously we'll guide um, when we come to that at the end of the year. But you can be sure that we will care for cash. We'll be very focused on cash conversion and the translation of profit into cash. You can see us paying a lot of attention to that as we go forward. Right, thanks, Julie. Next question. Uh, we get the next question from uh, Michael Wilson at GBS. So over to you, Michael. Uh, thank you, Nick. Question RSV and, and Luke's comment on prioritization, please. So I guess the ACIP recommendation could have been a little bit stronger than it was. Just wondering how you reacted to that. Will you throw more commercial resources at DirectV or is the plan executed as it was? Thank you. Thanks. Well, I know Luke's very excited uh, about the pending law, so just uh, add a bit of colour to that. Sure. Uh, look, I think on my Christmas wish list, it would have been for a, a simpler label, but that's the label we've got. Um, but I think to put it in perspective, our strategy has always been to focus on these high-risk individuals who naturally would engage in that type of discussion with the healthcare provider, our regular visitors to the pharmacy because they're polypharmacy. And uh, we, we have market research that clearly says that. And if you look at our label, that secondary claims, the 94% efficacy, et cetera, really plays to our strength. So I think at the end of the day, it doesn't have an enormous impact in the first couple of years. We are now actively with Tony's team generating the data that the ACIP uh, group wants to see, and we're confident that we can bring that. So I think if we look in the medium to long term, we'll see this a fully supported, you know, simpler access process for these vaccines. Um, our, our discussions with insurers are very, very encouraging. Um, there's also been some really good work published by uh, our friends in New York that looked at rates of RSV uh, present in hospital settings, particularly if you use Swedenborg-based tests. And they're looking at, you know, it's really an underdiagnosis by a factor of two. Uh, so, you know, the demand is there, the willingness to recommend is there. So we remain encouraged and the pricing is, of course, is higher. I think we have to see the full effect in terms of the multi-season label. But again, for these high-risk patients, I think this is more of a reassurance. Um, and also, arguably, let's just move this out of the seasonal collar um, that we would normally typically have with flu because you've got that longer longer time frame in terms of courage. So net-net, uh, I think we remain very excited, as Emma said. We're very much looking forward to a, a scientific battle uh, with Pfizer, and uh, it's something that we relish. And uh, in the end, this is going to be mean that uh, physicians and pharmacists are better informed and patients are going to get a better vaccine. Right. Thank you. Next question, please. Uh, next question from Graham Parry at Bank of America. Graham, over to you, please. Hi, Graham. Hi, thanks for taking the question. Um, so actually, I, I just want to follow up on, I think a couple of people asked effectively if you can grow Shingrix in the US. I'll just throw that out because I don't think it's been answered. And then actually asked my question, which is on Zantac. Um, so with the GERT settlement, you showed a willingness or even a desire to settle cases in California. Um, but um, is that still the attitude that you have towards the upcoming case in November, and now the same lead plaintiff's attorney is representing the plaintiffs both in California and the Delaware cases, would any settlement of the entirety of the Zantec litigation now need to include a Delaware settlement as well? Thank you. Thanks, Graham. Well, um, we'll come to Luke to see whether he wants to add anything more to his already reasonably comprehensive answers uh, on the US. But uh, uh, in terms of Look, we, we remain very confident in our position. We continue to be guided by the science, the evidence that's been in place. Uh, we've got a dedicated team managing this. We'll continue to defend ourselves vigorously. 
We obviously won't comment on our specific legal strategy uh, ahead of its uh, execution. Uh, happy to be where we are, and we'll keep everybody updated uh, as we progress through, uh, obviously um, knowing that we've got uh, Delaware coming in the new year. So nothing more to add than that. Luke uh, is shaking his head with nothing new to add on triggers. So back to you, Nick. Super, Thanks, thank Sarah. you. Um, can we take the next question from Rajesh Kumar at uh, HSBC, please? Hi there. Uh, just on the capital allocation piece, uh, you yeah. you suggested that you're going to you know focus on uh, deals as well as uh, you know investing organically in R and D. So yeah. could could you run us through some uh, you know criteria you look at when you deploy capital uh, when when you pick between R and D versus external investment? How do you compare the two? What are the internal metrics you look at? And if the management uh, below the top management are incentivized similarly for doing deals versus organic investment? Yeah, so I'll comment on that and then um, see if Jimmy wants to add anything further. But it should be really clear in our in our capital allocation framework that our number one priority is investing in growth. And as you saw both from Julie's side and from Tony's side, uh, that's about the pipeline and our launches. And within the pipeline, it is organic and inorganic. I mean, you will know this across the entire sector. I think probably about half of the pipeline is sourced from outside. That number is probably uh, going up across uh, the sector. And, you know, we've been really pleased with the reset of our balance sheets to create the capacity to do that and have had a you know very focused uh, track record of executing against deals uh, at a reasonably um, swift pace, uh, particularly over the last uh, 18 uh, months or so. You should expect to see all be the same. I think the most important point is because it's part of the way we do R&D, our BD team reports into Tony, there is uh, we've been very thoughtful about the incentive system and the goals that are set in terms of pipeline progression to keep it neutral regardless of whether it's sourced internally or externally, because you're absolutely right. You can end up with some slightly perverse incentives around that, uh, which aren't um, uh, helpful. And our criteria are uh, unchanged, and I think we're laid out explicitly on, on Tony's uh, opening slide. Um, we like to look for assets that are best in class, first in class. We look at ROIs, NPVs. We look at contribution to sales growth, particularly in the latter half of the decade and beyond. We look across the balanced portfolio of risk um, uh, across all um, therapeutic areas. Uh, we're obviously focused more on investing in our specialty um, and vaccines uh, pipeline, but also in technology platforms that will allow us to continue to improve um, productivity. So that's why we like to see the tech enablement of, of what we bring, bring through. The really important point is that regardless of whether it's internal or external, regardless of TA, we use the same set of criteria. So I don't know if either Tony or Julian are to that or... Yeah, just a, a, an extra point. I think, um, I mean, we have got also a very rigorous governance pro- process that yeah. runs through both BD assets. Uh, we get together regularly looking at the BD pipeline as well as the organic pipeline. 
Um, and as Emma mentioned, you know, one of our jobs we see as being very important is also to accelerate the key assets. So we identify the key assets. We look to accelerate them. We look to ensure that they've got the right resources to do that and that we remove any blocker that could be there in the organization. And finally, we also review assets, whether it be BD or organic, for success. So we do post-deal reviews uh, also. So there's a very rigorous process around this. Great. Thank you. Next question. Uh, next question from Rich Parks at BMP Paribas. Over to you, Richard. Thanks, Nick. Um, so I just wanted to push you a little bit more to talk about your um, expectation for the RSV launch based on the initial outreach. I think with the need for boosters looking <laughs> uncertain, I think the market's sceptical on your previous Shingrix-like target, but given higher pricing, clearly it could be a more meaningful opportunity near term if you can drive rapid uptake. Um, looking at consensus, I think we've got 180 million of sales this year and growing to 570 next year. I just wondered if you could give us your thoughts on whether you see potential to exceed those numbers or is the weaker ASIP recommendation and maybe lower vaccine uptake that you're factoring into flu vaccine going to be a headwind to that? I, I, I know you've not upgraded the vaccines guidance despite that higher pricing. So does that moderate your expectations in terms of volume? Thank you very much. Thanks. Well, I mean, first of all, I'll start and I'll come to Luke on any additional comments. But there is absolutely no change to our outlook, which was re-emphasised again uh, at our Meet the Management update on infectious diseases, that we see the potential of this to be around £3 billion um, uh, pounds of sales. So in that sense, it's a multi-billion asset. Uh, I think we've been clear right from the beginning that we didn't expect the stock to be at the same rate as Shinrix, um, just for the simple factor of uh, awareness of disease. Of course, we've had some com- uh, competitiveness for arm space in there. Um, uh, but also, as you know, um, uh, we have a very specific recommendation from ACIP uh, for Shinrix, which is unusual, as well as uh, a bizarrely helpful uh, initial sources of supply, which we are a long way from uh, dealing with uh, here. We're also taking a different uh, pace of uh, launching in multiple countries across the world. We don't guide for individual quarters of sales, um, but Luke, I'll let you comment on some more details around the price stress as well. Yeah, thanks, Richard. I mean, I think you know there was no solution for RSV uh, historically, so it didn't really make a lot of sense for systems to focus on. Um, and then as you saw COVID with uh, PCR testing, often that was an accompanying test and better understanding of the character character and prevalence of RSV emerged. Uh, so I think we're in a very different place that we were, say, a couple of years ago. And we, as we start to promote it uh, and educate doctors and pharmacists and pharmacist chains are very enthusiastic about this product. Um, I think that's a very fair long-term ambition. There's a heavy overlap with, if you look at high-dose flu, um, and, and of course the Shigrix population and the pneumococcal population. Uh, I, I've said in the past, uh, that I think will be a steady build, that, that the peak will be very strong. And uh, this is outstanding data for uh, something that's very you know, impactful for healthcare systems and individuals. So I think we'll get there. Um, and the data that we've generated so far is quite exciting. Pricing-wise, um, again, you know, we we went into ASEP with a, with a collar of 270 to 295, and we've been able to um, keep within that at 280. Uh, so I think our credibility with ASEP is enhanced. Through that process, uh, and the reception we've received so far from payers and, 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 uh, and pharmacy chains has been very encouraging. So 
Uh, that's probably all I can say at this point. I very much look forward to updating everyone in Q3. Wonderful. Thanks, Luke. Uh, next question from Andrew Baumert City. Over to you, please, Andrew. Many thanks. Um, so in relation to strategy, we're expecting it to be included in the IRA price negotiation list being enacted in, in 2027. I'm curious as to how Luke is thinking about the ability of GSK to claw back the rebate in order to mitigate the impact of the list price reduction. Um, my understanding is that PBMs cannot exclude a drug once it's been selected for price negotiations. Um, do you think you can take away the rebate, or do you think that the PBMs will make you pay by creating hurdles to other products in your portfolio? And then just following up on an earlier question uh, in relation to the impact of the out-of-pocket cap in driving increased volumes, um, to what extent do you think because still the patients are going to have to pay $2,000 out of their own pocket. How meaningful do you think that really is in getting patients off your patient assistance program onto pay drugs? Or do you actually think $2,000 is still a real barrier for many patients and therefore the volume impact isn't going to be that meaningful? Thank you. Yeah, Andrew, I think $2,000 is still a large amount of money for for many people, uh, particularly older individuals. But it's an improvement. It's more predictable. Um, for, for those patients. So, I, you know, I don't see a massive adjustment in some of our assistance programs, particularly in oncology and areas like that. Um, in terms of Trilogy, I mean, Q4 this year, we'll have a better idea uh, in terms of how CMS is defining uh, those first, uh, you know, Part D drugs um, and how they, how the, uh, how it's going to be managed. Um, but we have, as you said, high, very high RAI rates on Trilogy already. I think PBMs are uh, probably the more your your second scenario is more likely to be reality, um, and I think we we'd be you know we're very rational to make that assumption, um, but we're obviously starting to think about various combinations and initiating discussions with them. I think the other factor with, with Trilogy is whether you'll see a generic emerge at some point because the technical challenges of encompassing or enclosing free inhaled medicines and validating that through a regulatory path is not simple. Um, as we've seen with, with Advair. Um, so I think that's also another factor which uh, we're starting to look at. Right, thanks. Next. Yeah, please do take the next question from Kerry Holford at Berenberg. Over to you, Kerry. Oh, hi, thank you, Nick. Um, question please for Deborah on long acting HIV. Uh, so clearly Capanuva strong performance in Q2, just whether you can talk to that. Was that growth in this quarter truly reflective of underlying demand? Or are there any one-offs to be aware of women modelling sales in the second half of this year and beyond? Um, you also highlighted that together, two drug regimens, long-acting, represent, I think you said, around 50% of total VIB. So interested to see whether that run rate at this point is what you would have expected from the long-acting portfolio in particular. Are you behind, in line or ahead of those internal expectations? at this point in the year. And can I squeeze in a quick one just to remind us of the timelines for your three-monthly dosing formulation? Thank you. Thanks, Kerry. Well, obviously, we're um, extremely pleased with the performance of B3 this year and to be able to upgrade our outlooks uh, on it, um, and not least because of the innovation that we pioneered on uh, coming through so strongly. So, Deborah, do you want to pick up on those? Yeah, thanks for the question, um, Kerry. Needless to say, we're really pleased with the um, performance of our HIV business um, in the quarter. 
um, really strong underlying growth uh, for both our all two grade regimens and our long acting injectables. And that is uh, absolutely being driven by demand. So let's go into Cabanuva. Um, it's all demand. We have seen really positive um, demand for um, our products from people who are living with HIV. And we know this is set to continue because we know that many uh, doctor's offices have got people on waiting lists, particularly in the US, uh, to be started on the drug. So it's really strong um, underlying demand from people living with HIV. We expect that to continue. And this in turn gives us confidence that, you know, we can build this market and we can, you know, deliver greater and greater share of this market through our long-acting injectables. Um, in terms of expectation, it's ahead of where we expected, if I'm completely honest. So to be at 51% of our overall portfolio in uh, our oral two drug regimens and long-acting injectables is ahead of expectation. We're really delighted by the under- underlying demand and particularly the long-acting injectable uptake uh, from, from, from Cabanuva. Um, it takes a long time to build a market, and you're in this market on your own, so, um, you know, you always wonder how much will it take, and can you unlock each stage of the journey, each barrier that you face, and actually the answer is yes, we can, and we're really optimistic, really optimistic about this opportunity. In terms of the pipeline, I mean, we'll talk more about this at the Meet the Management session in September, but... You know, what we've, what we've said is that, you know, we're looking to target an ultralong-acting version of cabotegravir, um, so an ultralong-acting every three months plus um, from, from 2027 onwards. Uh, we're making really good progress with our reformulation of cabotegravir because uh, that's going to be the backbone to the first wave of our innovation in threat and in treatment. And so what you've probably seen on, on some of the slides that Tony presented was are starting to move forward the accompanying uh, partners, be it maturation inhibitor, be it capsid, or be it our VNAM. And so we're kind of moving those assets forward so that we can make a choice um, in 2024 of the regimen that we will take forward. Um, and so the dates that we've given in our previous investor updates stand, but we hope to be able to give you a little more specificity when we do the, um, the legal management in September but very optimistic, uh, you know, position to be in both from a pipeline and a performance perspective uh, in the HIV space. Great. Thanks, Deborah. Well, um, I gather there are still a few handful more questions, so we'll keep going and try and give us give some short answers. <laughs> Looking for myself. Next. Oh, yeah. Just one correction or one clarification. Um, the patent expiry or LOE for Trellage is 2027, but where... IRA would have an impact as 2028. Just want to make sure everyone's clear on that. Right, thanks. Thank you. Yeah, Simon Baker, over to you, please, at Redburn. Thank you, Nick. Good afternoon, everyone, and thanks for taking the question. Um, going back, um, Tony, to slide 13 on R&D, um, two related questions, uh, so one really. Um, firstly, on the reduced cycle times, could you give us some idea of how much of that is down to therapeutic uh, mix and how much is, is underlying reduction? Uh, in uh, non-vaccine R&D times. And also on the, the probability trend, you show a nice uh, trend of improvement in uh, phase two, three and beyond probabilities of success. Normally that is matched by a reduction in success rates in phase one, i.e. you are killing projects, projects earlier. I wonder if you could give us an idea how that trend has evolved uh, over time. Thanks very much. Thanks, great. So, Penny, no key area of focus for you. Yeah. 
noting down both questions so I don't forget <laughs> forget them. In, in in terms of your, your your first question with regards to um cycle times and um obviously there's a component of vaccines in that. However we are seeing cycle times come down particularly across um our late stage portfolio. So we a contribution from both. And then in terms of success rates in, in phase two of course, what we want to do throughout the portfolio is begin to take attrition earlier and earlier. And one of the things that we're driving, coming from our focus in human genetics and functional genomics, and of course the benefits that we get in focusing in infectious diseases, is to be able to take attrition on an efficacy terms much earlier than first time in humans. So I'm expecting that, or rather what we'll see for the future is those preservation of phase two success rates and it being accounted for by earlier attrition than, um, than that necessarily in, in first time in human, where very much I'd be more focused on the quality of agents driving survival in that, in that stage. Thanks. So the next question, please. Next question from Emmanuel Papadakis at Deutsche Bank. Over to you, Emmanuel. Thank you, sir. Um, perhaps just a quick follow-up. I think, Luke, you said the in response to the earlier question around rebates offsetting price negotiation, you said the second scenario. Could you just clarify what you meant by that? I do you mean you think you will be able to reduce rebating to offset that price reduction? And then the question I wanted to ask was just on my monotony, the delay in the PDUFA, to what extent do you think any bolus will now be diminished in demand by the delay, given the emergent data we've seen on anemia benefit with procritinib? And to what extent, indeed, then is procritinib's quarterly run rate of 20 million or so actually a better guide to how we should be thinking about the launch? Thank you. So, Emmanuel, I just think we're going to have pressure and it's going to be difficult to evade those structures, um, which I think is my understanding of Andrew's two options. So... I would expect the high pain scenario versus the low pain scenario with, with, uh, with, with Trevor terms of linkage to other products in the portfolio. But again, we're looking at options to, um, offset that. And I think that, um, yeah, we're making good progress there. In terms of monolotinib, um, I think the bolus will still be there. It's really interesting. Some of the recent market research we got, uh, is quite encouraging. I mean, it, now, some of the numbers, just just for interest, I mean, 75% of doctors agree that it fulfills an unmet need. Um, this was quite interesting. Around 60% of patients present with anemia within one year of diagnosis, and about 46 need a transfusion. And and the other interesting statistic, which fits our strategy, is about two thirds of them are on that 10 to 5 milligram dose of of, of ruxolitinib. But in terms of procritinib, um, I don't think it's an accurate um, analog. Because really their label is, uh, within that platelet subgroup versus the broader anemia group. There has been some, obviously some creative posters, et cetera, um, presented, but, um, the NCCN guidelines, uh, if you look at the minutes, they, they declined to, uh, review, um, that broader recommendation. So that product is very much anchored in a, in a low, you know, below 50, um, platelet group, whereas we have a much broader opportunity, we believe, um, with, with anemic patients. We'll wait and see what the FDA ultimately decides in terms of the label. We built the business case for the deal on a second line label, second line anemia. Hope that helps. I think last question, do we have? Last question. So over to Steve Scala at Cowan. So Steve, OT, please. Oh, thank you. Can you hear me? We can. Okay, uh, thank you. In adult RSV, how has your success in contracting thus far compared to your expectations and versus what you think Pfizer has accomplished to date? 
is your potentially superior data giving the edge versus Pfizer? And if not, then why do you think that's the case? Thank you very much. And so in recognition that we are in a competitive commercial situation, I'll let Luke uh, answer the final question. Thanks, Steve. Um, Steve, <clears throat> we encourage, but it's happening right now. So uh, literally as we speak. So we'll, we'll have more news for you in Q3, hopefully, that's good news. Great. Sorry, I can't tell you more. <laughs> thanks, Luke. Uh, well, once again, thanks, everyone, for jo- joining us. We've been... Uh, very pleased to report another excellent quarter of performance with strong sales and earnings uh, growth driven by new product sales, notably in HIV and vaccines, ongoing progress in our pipeline, the approval of the world's first RSV vaccine, close of our Bella Bella's Health uh, deal, and of course, upgrading gu- guidance. And uh, with this momentum uh, behind us, a lot of confidence in delivering our short, medium and long term uh, 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 targets. And we uh, really look forward to keeping you informed over the quarters ahead. Thanks all. Bye.